0: Welcome to another free first-hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to TheHigherSideChats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. Let's go, Brandon! From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and lately, all I really need from the rest of the world to feel better is a sincere apology to the conspiracy community about pretty much everything. The incremental implementation of an overarching one-world godlike government? Check. Completely captured regulatory agencies that aren't doing much more than play-acting? Check. A manipulative media coordinating with the big machine rather than asking any critical questions of it? Check. A too-close-for-comfort relationship between the billionaire class and organized child trafficking? Check that box, too. And the list goes on. I would say we've been proven right about most things, right on up to lizard people. And even there, the jury's still out. But the global parasite class has played their hand, pushing forth in full-court press fashion and hoping that they're so swift that you don't pay much attention to the details or notice the giant cracks in the mono-narrative logic along the way. Well, luckily, some people do still notice and have the guts to say something about it, despite the censorship campaign and the cancellation climate. And one of those very important people is independent investigative journalist Jordan Schachtel. His podcast and Substack newsletter, both titled The Dossier, have been making all the right calls throughout the last year and a half, and he's now making content on Rockfin as well. His work lately has largely focused on the real threat, the global pandemic of authoritarianism, and that sounds like the right call to me. It's a pleasure to have him here. He watches The Watchman, reads between the lines, and dares to tell the truth in our troubled times. Jordan, welcome to The Higher Side.
1: Thanks for that amazing introduction, Greg. That might have been the uh, the number one intro I've ever received. So,
0: <laughs> Wow, wow. I appreciate that. And you deserve it, man. Thanks for doing this. Your work has been really on point through the COVID era. And while some people might just be starting to come around, I think you've been way ahead of the game and a lot of your colleagues too. It is a huge power and control grab based on a really aggressive campaign of fear. I know you were a journalist before this, obviously, but I learned about your work through all this, and it's just been great. For people who are just now being introduced, how would you describe the perspective you've had through the whole COVID narrative, and what were some of the first red flags you saw that this was not exactly what it seemed to be?
1: Yeah, so I came at this from an interesting perspective, I think at least. My backgrounds, my academic studies were in international affairs, international relations, foreign policy. And I was a reporter for a little bit before I kind of started all my own stuff with my Substack and my podcast. But I kind of just took, I don't want to say a global perspective because that implies a lot. But, you know, I was always very fascinated by what's going on in the world around me as opposed to just in my local community, which is fine to have that perspective. And I encourage people to have a more localized perspective. And then I was also, you know, I kind of had a personal interest in dystopian film and books, especially on the fiction side. Yeah, it's kind of turned into a nonfiction environment. But (laughs) when this whole stuff started out in Wuhan, China, all these crazy news stories, about this new virus and people dropping in the streets. And, you know, China was like spraying disinfectant all over the streets. And I was just trying to get a sense of what was going on. So I started investigating this COVID stuff by reading the source materials, kind of like pandemic playbook stuff from whether it's the CDC, WHO, like what happens in the event of Something like this, where they say, you know, there's a highly transmissible new virus. And the most interesting thing I found was that these guidelines that they laid out, none of these governments, well, China in the beginning, wasn't following any of these guidelines, you know, by locking down healthy people, by spraying the streets with these chemicals, and just nothing seemed to make sense. But what I noticed is that this media narrative about these lockdowns and these restrictions caught on. They started declaring it science. And, you know, myself and and a few others, I think, questioned it based on this basis. We're like, what do you mean it's science? Like, where is the evidence that any of this stuff is part of reacting to the spread of infectious disease? And we challenged it from the very beginning. And basically, sadly, I think the vast majority of people in the media basically labeled my crowd, as akin to bioterrorists, for simply questioning the fact that these governments were shutting down their entire societies through force to attempt to stop a virus. And as the last two years have shown us, none of this stuff that they did worked to um, you know entertain any type of positive health outcomes. So in the end, we were right, and I wish that more people, you know, this is an ongoing Crisis of authoritarianism. And I think that at least I see a lot of good energy on the counter narrative, you know, the counter revolution side, where people are really starting to be fed up. They're starting to, I think, have an extremely healthy distrust in our institutions, particularly in the United States. The media, the government has really shown their cards, and they, I think, miscalculated. In the idea that they don't think that there's going to be a counter movement, but it, it's very clear, you know, you're, you're seeing it, especially like the, what's very interesting that I've been following in the last couple of days has been like this whole Southwest Airlines tobacco, where it seems that the pilots are kind of fed up. And you know, there's a lot of brave people that are finally stepping out from the shadows and making their voices heard on this.
0: hmm. Yes, that's a great summary. and. I hope you're right. Sometimes I just don't know. I think I might be too far down the rabbit hole. The algorithms might have me in too much of a conspiracy bubble for me to properly assess what regular people are thinking. But yeah, things like Southwest and what's going on there definitely indicate that maybe this is a wider problem. Of course, they just say that the flights are grounded because of poor weather and technical issues. And they'll say anything they can except that the mandates have caused the pilots to not want to go to work and they're not going to put up with it because that story just can't get out, even though it's seeming more obvious uh, with each hour that I see something new on this. I am curious, though, how you would compare your pre- and post-COVID career. Has it affected the way that you operate? Have you seen this critical coverage affect your popularity in a positive or negative way? Have there been any consequences or not so much?
1: Well, early on, I always worked in right of center, in the right of center media world. So if I was someone in the legacy media, they certainly would have gotten rid of me real fast. But early on, when I was speaking out against this, you'd be shocked. I, I Maybe you had similar circumstances. But even people that I had considered friends were like attacking me online. And I was like, you know, I'm just questioning what the government is saying about this thing. I didn't think it was. They convinced the masses that this was a life or death situation and there was no time to question authority. So it really worked to manipulate people. And what I did find is that, you know, living through this, Pandemic mania stuff. I think you learn a lot about human nature, and unfortunately, it went to show that people can very easily be manipulated through the form of a perceived crisis, and it was extremely effective. You kind of wonder because I'm 32. Yeah, I was born in 1989. Never really lived through in the United States. A crisis that you saw in like Nazi Germany or in the Soviet Union, where there was imminent crises happening, and you wonder how so much of the population can be manipulated into these awful ideologies, and that was kind of my experience covering this stuff is that sadly that I wouldn't say that history repeats itself, but there's just something about human nature where people get into a collective group and just embrace this toxic government manipulation campaigns and accept the authoritarianism as if the government is somehow looking out for their health. And it never made sense to me. I think that some of the best people reacting to this were the libertarian folks who were kind of the most principled on this. But a lot of people, and if you weren't grounded in any kind of like firm ideological embrace of freedom. I'd say that most people just accepted the totalitarianism as if like the government had the right to just run roughshod over all of our rights. Mhm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to see how people have been affected. I mean, we cast a pretty wide net as a podcast. UFOs, the occult, permaculture, Bigfoot. People might listen because they like that stuff and not so much the conspiracy or political stuff, but I'd say we've lost a surprisingly small number of people, and that's a beautiful thing considering how polarizing this is, how many people are responding out of fear, and I guess I'm thankful for that because we are kind of out there with this minority opinion that, yes, I hope people are waking up to, but it's just so tough to say. and. When it comes to the latest threads in the whole saga, I wanted to ask you about Biden's $3.5 trillion Build Back Better tax plan, as you call it, the We Will Own Nothing and Be Happy tax plan. And we know that terminology from the World Economic Forum. We also know that we saw Nancy Pelosi's version of the first COVID relief bill have language in it for a central bank digital currency. So you can learn a lot from what they try to get into these big packages. What have you seen in this proposed spending plan that supports that overarching, you will own nothing and like it plan of theirs?
1: Yeah, it's difficult for me to strategically discuss whether I want the government to just bankrupt the country <laughs> and so we can get over with the fiat collapse or try to get some sense of, you know, fiscal responsibility, advocate for fiscal responsibility in D.C. Especially, I think Pelosi just mentioned this today again, one of the most threatening things of this gigantic bill is that they want to empower the IRS by allowing the institution to check, well, mandating that these financial institutions report every transaction to them that anyone has made through their bank of 600 dollars or more and in a world of well in a country with skyrocketing inflation that almost applies to like in a year that might be like the average cost of shoes the way we're going so they want to and this package involves i think they're giving close to like they want to give like close to 100 billion dollars to the irs so you'll have one IRS agent for every American citizen that doesn't conform to the regime's demands. And that's a very scary place to be in. The idea that they think that they can, I think that some are delusional enough to think that they're just going to print their way out of inflation. And that's just not the way economics functionally operates. I think that it's just a disaster in the making. But sadly, the opposition to a $3.5 trillion spending bill in Washington, D.C. is an accommodation in the form of maybe like a $2 trillion spending bill. So it's one bad solution. I think Michael Malice, the famous libertarian, said that these Republicans are basically something along the lines of it's progressivism driving the speed limit. So we're still going, (laughs) they're still on the road to collapse, just a slower road to collapse. So Mm -hmm. for me, I try to urge people that they shouldn't feel like it's patriotic to stay attached to the dollar, whatever way you can find to protect your assets. You have to really do that in today's economy. You know, a lot of people like Bitcoin, some people like gold, some people want to invest in real estate because of all this rapid inflation. The idea that you need to stay loyal to the U.S. dollar and like, you know, keep it in a bank account. A lot of people are going to end up going broke and unhappy and the government's destroying the middle class in America and it's not, the road is not feasible. So you know, people really need to do their own research and stop letting the government determine your future. <laughs>
0: Well said. And when it comes to these two spending bills, it does seem like a lesser of two evils false choice once again. And I jotted this down while listening to you cover this on your podcast, but it's $79 billion that they're wanting for the IRS. And when I heard that number, these numbers are always so crazy. I was curious, well, how does that compare to the usual IRS budget? And it says IRS's actual expenditures were 12.3 billion for overall operations in 2020, up from about 11.8 billion in 2019. So, from the neighborhood of 12 to 13 billion shooting up to 79 billion. I mean, wow, that clearly does indicate a giant change in how they plan to operate, and that is pretty scary.
1: Yeah. It's nothing more than a giant financial surveillance tool. And I also talked about this on my podcast that it's not like they're trying to like enforce some kind of law. The problem is that there's so many laws on the books that if you assign a team of IRS agents to someone who's been an outstanding moral citizen and has run what they thought was a very clean business, they'll find something. It's almost inevitable at this point that... If they want to surveil you and they keep track of every single transaction that you're making, every phone call, every email, every interaction with regulatory agencies, they'll find something. There's so many laws in the books. So I think it's nothing more than just when you're giving that much money to the IRS, you're just empowering the governing regime. Mm hmm.
0: Well said. And you mention a fiat collapse coming. And I am curious your thoughts on that. You do note in that podcast episode that 40% of all dollars in circulation were printed in the last 18 months. That is a mind-blowing statistic. How soon do you expect there to be something in the way of either insane inflation or a dollar collapse? I mean, how... Bad would you expect that to be? And when would you expect people to really start to feel that?
1: Yeah, I think people are already feeling it now. (laughs) I just took a stroll through CVS this morning to pick up some stuff. And I live in South Florida, but I don't live in like, you know, some like high end community where everything's like upcharged, like in Manhattan or something like that, or the best place in Miami. I was looking at prices and they had gone up significantly in the last couple of months. Like you have like Old Spice body wash for like over 10 bucks now. Oh my <laughs> it's just God. like insane inflation. And even if you go to like the supermarket now, you'll find that beef, steak, anything like that is just off the charts, the pricing. And you're already starting to see the inflation due to the money printing. It's tough to tell if there's just going to be some type of like big collapse Because the Fed has so much money on its balance sheet to pump into the economy if necessary. But the fact that they're printing so much now, you have to wonder what was the inflation since the beginning of the COVID stuff? Is it what the government is saying and around 10% or is it closer to like 30% or 40%? On some items, that's very consistent. So imagine if we're printing this money. For the next couple of years, and you have like this compounding effect. So if it goes 40% over 18 months, and then the next 12 months are 40%, and the next six months are 40%, then before you know it, you're paying $100 for your burger, right? So it's just, it's one of those things that you might just wake up one day and be like, oh, shit, you might have a million dollars in the bank, but your million dollars, because of all the money printing, your 2019 million dollars might only be worth like, in 2023 if they continue with the insanity. But there's also the possibility that things might get out of control entirely. And that just, I guess, remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, man, just scary times. And you mentioned asset protection and crypto and real estate, which is funny because those are the exact examples I was going to use in this next question. But You mentioned this plan to tax unrealized investment gains, which to me is an attack on crypto and homeowners. So many regular people right now have probably never seen much return on anything except if they were lucky enough to get into crypto or have a house because the housing market has been so good. So maybe they're lucky enough to have some net value in one of those two places But to tax a person before they sell the asset on the potential for a gain, that is next level crazy like we've never seen, right?
1: Right. And that's only possible if you pass these type of bills in Congress and give the government these surveillance tools to look into or to have an institution like Robinhood or Fidelity mandated to report to the government if you're going like, let's say you bought Tesla stock at the right time, they have to alert the government if you're like 9x on your investment, even if you haven't sold it. That's such a crazy tax. Um, Janet Yellen's in favor of it, though, and it seems that the people in power are salivating at the idea of being able to do that. But again, you know, people are struggling so much right now, and it's sad. You know, I, I get a lot of emails from people who read my work and, just talking about their lives and you get the sense that there's a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck and i'd say that the tax on unrealized gains that's a huge problem but those are for the people who actually have the income to be able to invest there's also a lot of people who are still stuck in a system where they don't have the capacity to really put much money away so this is like the real evil of inflation Is that they are just, if they don't increase their income substantially, they're stuck in this system where they're just getting slowly poorer and poorer, but still need to feed their families, still need to work. That's how reckless our governing regime is right now, that they're just sending people into poverty with all this money printing, all this financial surveillance, and just making it more and more difficult for people to reach that, what used to be referred to as the American dream where you have some stability and you're able to take your family on vacation and not have to go broke to put your kids through college. That dream seems to be getting further and further away from us as the government becomes more and more reckless.
0: Yes, it's true. And people out there are more willing to take a chance on a Bored Ape NFT rather than invest in their company 401k plan. And that is kind of scary because people's mindset is just like, well, anything traditional or institutional isn't going to work. So let me really gamble because I'm looking for that 10x and it just doesn't exist for people in my position, except for maybe this Bored Ape thing. And, you know, part of me enjoys watching that. But it's also really sad, the mindset that gets a person to that particular place, but Another aspect of this tax plan, maybe even both tax plans, is the prospect of a per mile travel tax. This is a big deal because it would hurt people who drive to work. Again, it's like these mechanisms of incentive. They want you to stay home in that self-imprisoned position and just work through the computer. And then also, this would be a tax on the supply chain and truckers and anyone traveling across the country. It just seems like, again, kind of like what you said in the beginning, every button they could push or lever they could pull that makes things worse, they're trying to pull it. They're trying to push it. And this is another example of that, isn't it?
1: Right. It reminds me of, in a lot of Western Europe, there are... A lot of countries in Western Europe, they want to discourage people from living out in the suburbs, out in the countryside. So what you find is like, you know, the cities are highly populated and you leave the cities, get on a train somewhere. And like there's all this countryside that's just like totally abandoned. And they're creating these same incentives in America. And I think that it's just more control over the citizen. They call it part of this climate agenda. They say they're very concerned with the climate. But then again, they allow themselves to fly. You know, all these members of Congress are flying in and out every weekend. The ones that are considered more of a big deal will get on the private jets, you know, the Pelosi's of the world. So the idea that they want to tax people that actually need to commute to work, it seems very disingenuous at the very least. The idea that you're like committing some kind of evil deed by deciding to want to live in a residential home so you can commute to work. This whole bill is just filled with one power grab after another. And this is definitely one of the big ones.
0: Yeah, that's a great point too. It's like, if you have to drive to work, well, now you better move into the city and shorten your commute because you can't afford not to. And it's just another one of those little incremental things. And they definitely are trying to huddle us into these smart cities as best they can. And let me ask you about big incentives for green energy. Obviously, this is another one of the big agendas that's kind of uh, not getting as much attention as COVID, but it seems to be merging as well. But have you seen anything related to green energy and noteworthy moves in that direction that also take us down that path of the climate agenda?
1: Right. I think that they run in parallel to each other. This whole, what they refer to as the Build Back Better campaign, one of the fundamental platforms of that campaign is this whole thing where the earth is dying and we need to stop breathing basically in order to, they're trying to position the climate crisis as like the big crisis now, as opposed to COVID. I just saw these US politicians, I forgot which ones they were, but I just saw a clip this morning And they were basically saying, oh, you think that COVID was bad? Wait till the climate crisis gets out of control. And then, of course, there's no specifics. So you ask them, "Okay, so what's the climate crisis and what can we do about it? What are these statistics that show there's a climate crisis? And they'll never really show you statistics, but they'll tell you contribute to carbon. Like all these kind of like scammy programs like this ESG stuff and this carbon credits that are just like enriching certain people in certain industries. They'll tell you to contribute to that, and that's that's how you solve the carbon climate crisis. You can buy up carbon credits. It's just so ridiculously absurd, and it's just one more tool to get people to embrace having the government control every single aspect of their lives. <laughs> this like scorched earth mentality that never applies to the elites. It's only. The everyday person who needs to work the nine to five, they need to sacrifice. But a guy like John Kerry, the Biden administration's climate czar, and it's kind of fascinating they find the same people for all these jobs. It's like the third Obama term, basically, that John Kerry's flying around telling people that they need to take seriously the threat posed by climate change while he's private jetting throughout the world and the hypocrisy is on display, but I, you know, at this point, they're almost like flaunting the hypocrisy. I don't buy it that they're genuine about this stuff for a second.
0: I'm right there with you. Yeah, taking private jets to climate summits, having these 9,000 square foot homes. They're completely hypocritical. It's about control, just like COVID. It's not about keeping you safe. It's about control. But- I like that you mentioned the ESG thing. Adam Curry's been talking about this in an investment sense for people who don't know that publicly traded companies are now getting these ESG scores for their wokeness. ESG stands for environmental, social, and corporate governance. If your company has a low ESG score, investors and advertisers will flow to a company with a better score because there's these watchdog agencies out there that are like, well, look at this guy. He invested in a bad company. They have a low score. And it's crazy. But if you don't play ball, then you're going to weaken the flow of capital into your company because the investment firms don't want the headache. And I also just noticed something else this morning when I was scoping out Amazon to check on potential supply shortages of household items. Well, I noticed they now have this green label, where certain things are marked as climate pledge friendly. And when you click on that and it describes what that little emblem is for, it says climate change friendly uses sustainability certifications to highlight products that support our commitment to help preserve the natural world because time is fleeting. And clearly this is another step towards You should buy these things over those things, which is not far from you can only buy these things and not those things. And it's just a scary totalitarian tiptoe towards that world that people have been warning about.
1: The ESG thing is just they slowly built up a position that they've become a middleman in financial transactions. And they're just basically like raising the cost of doing business. But it's the ESG it's become like a club or a cult where you need to accommodate or like buy them off essentially to do business. in, like you said, in these major financial institutions, and it's utterly ridiculous. I would definitely recommend for your listeners, Alex Epstein's The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. It's an excellent book that really breaks down the far left's so-called climate agenda operates and how there's no real sense that they even know that you can't run an entire nation on solar and wind energy, and it's such a small component of the grid, and it's actually very unreliable. People are like living in fantasy land and and these are the same people that will reject nuclear energy, so they set these unachievable goals, but the people who really know I think are just wanting to like these e s g people want to take a cut and want to make sure that only people who are ideologically compliant with e s g can remain successful.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I struggle to know what to think about certain energy sources because of course nuclear there aren't a lot of disasters but when there is one it's pretty bad and you're talking to a guy who lives in San Diego so we just had this big oil spill along the west coast and it's coming all the way down here and that's really shitty but there are things like tidal energy and geothermal energy that really, I haven't heard any true criticisms on. And it just seems like their priority is to push us towards things that are meterable and controllable. And they don't really care about what's better for the environment. That's not the issue. That's just the cover story. So it's more about how can we shut you on and off if we want? I just saw another article that came out of NPR. Four or five friends of mine sent it to me. So clearly it was in everybody's algorithm. But it was about how we really need to get rid of these gas stoves. They say 35% of gas stoves or stoves out there are still gas and it's very dangerous and it's killing people and it's bad for your children. And it's like, yeah, well, electric stoves are, are less secure if you want to cook food and be connected to the grid in that same way. So it just seems like across the board, it's that push to metered surveilled, processes, and nothing that really is truly long-lasting or beneficial to large-scale communities.
1: Yeah, from my perspective, I'm very much on the liberty-leaning side of things. And I think just it goes to show that when the government gets involved in like trying to regulate electricity, I think President Trump famously talked about how the light bulbs and the shower heads... You know, he was campaigning kind of like jokingly, but half serious on the fact that, you know, there's no shower pressure anymore and that our ovens are taking too long to cook and, you know, new washing machines don't work because there's all these like ESG compliant, you know, energy efficiency standards. And for me, it just shows that when the government's trying to get involved in regulating our lives, they end up just destroying them.
0: Right. I agree with that. And they definitely have different motivations too. And let me ask you about the Facebook whistleblower story, because I haven't actually talked about it with anyone here, but it is just so clearly a plant. Real whistleblowers have to flee the country. They don't get 60 minute specials, blue check marks on social media, or a red carpet rolled out for them in Washington, D.C. But what would you say the point of it really was? Why push such a plant forward to the main stage right now?
1: It's hard to tell. What I think is that. I mean, this is just my speculation. Well, to be clear, I believe that she's a totally phony whistleblower. And you could tell that by the PR campaign. And I think Edward Snowden is the example of what happens to a true whistleblower. You know, you end up having your passport deleted and the government's hunting you down. You know, someone like Julian Assange, too, even though he's not an American citizen or or Ross Ulbricht, who is still in jail for the crime of creating a marketplace. But the Facebook whistleblower, I I think it's a campaign and I'm not sure who the people are that are specifically behind it. Certainly with the consent of the government, the ruling regime, she's like very much part of this regime narrative, that social media needs to be more regulated. And I think Facebook, they significantly accommodate the government's requests. But I think For them, it's still not enough. It reminds me of how China deals. China already has a significant stake in almost every corporation. You know, this like Alibaba, WeChat, that kind of stuff. Chinese government has a lot of overarching authority over how they monitor the communications on these platforms. But they still want more. And I think that this is what the whistleblower is trying to, the so-called whistleblower is trying to accomplish. They want Facebook even more tightly secured to the government's agenda. They don't want any separation there. So while conservatives think that Facebook is like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is just this big deplatformer, which is mostly true and the company is now a force for censorship, I think what the left thing, not really the left, but the ruling class in the United States, especially the federal government, they do not want Facebook to have the autonomy that they still have. So they're using, I think, this whistleblower in order to chip away at what's left of Facebook's independence from government oversight.
0: I agree with you. And I had this quote down that you had written. The Facebook whistleblower is such an obvious fraud. Her advocates know that we know that she's a fraud. They are hell-bent on imposing a complete censorship regime on us, but they have miscalculated The one-party system will not prevail in the long run. And that's well said. They might not prevail in the long run, but they're getting close enough to make me nervous. And some are even suggesting the Green Pass or COVID Pass could be implemented to access the Internet, most likely after a major outage that they would blame on a solar flare or something. Headlines are already priming us for that, too. Klaus Schwab has called for a citizenship of the internet and warned of a cyber pandemic. It does seem like a bridge too far to actually get us to that point of login with something like an ID card, but the idea is in the air. What do you think?
1: It's hard to take anything off the table nowadays. If you were to talk to me a few years ago, I would think, oh, you know, that's too much. The government would never try something like this or, you know, these international forces, like the World Economic Forum, and these big institutions that have a lot of sway, uh, these UN attached institutions, you can't write anything off anymore. (laughs) And that's one of the big lessons that I've learned since the COVID-19 stuff started to happen is that, especially, you know, when you're looking at what's going on with this White House, and you hear that Biden like had a set created for him, there's all this fake stuff going on, and Kamala Harris was supposedly showing children around the White House, and even those children apparently had to audition for the role. So you never know what's real and what's fake with what's going on with all these plans that they have. And I remember during President Trump's tenure, if you can get to the standard where you have the FBI operating as this agency that wants to essentially launch a coup against the sitting president of the United States and spy on them. No plan is really out of balance at that point when you reject the mandate of the people and decide that as the government security apparatus should be able to rule American citizens. So I can't discount anything. If the government isn't showing me evidence, I'm not going to just blindly believe anything anymore. (laughs) I guess I could leave it at (laughs) that.
0: Right, right. Man, I really do like that Trump left the Paris Climate Agreement. And I like the language he used around COVID, him saying that Biden wore the biggest mask he'd ever seen might be my highlight of the whole four years. But man, I wish he would have fired Fauci or done something to push back the big pharma overreach. It just seems like. He really could have done more there, if you ask me.
1: I agree with you. Well, I think that it's fair to defend him as a businessman. It's very important when I think you're supporting future candidates for political office. Need to know where their motives lie. Having spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., I think the vast majority of politicians, including people who run for president, their impulses is that they just want to have power over you. So I think that there are some exceptional figures like Senator Rand Paul or Thomas Massey, a great congressman. I think if you want to change the system, people need to be elected whose first principle is to defend your rights. And I don't think that Donald Trump was in that category. So when he was presented with solutions, like when they started with the 15 days to stop the spread, he didn't really see that as alarming because his perspective was not aligned correctly on protecting people's rights. And and you're right, he did give Fauci and Deborah Birx the keys for the castle for too long, and I certainly criticized him for that. But again, these institutions have a lot of power. And. It's very difficult even to combat them, even if you're the president of the United States, unfortunately. So it leads to a greater conversation about how do we want to engage with this system moving forward?
0: Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of nuance there for sure. But with all the criticisms I had, it's hard to not want to go back right now, given the First year of the Biden presidency. We're not even through it, and it's just been so crazy. But we are recording this on October 12th, and it probably won't be up for a week, but there's a lot of talk about the October 15th date and various industries going to strike over the mandates. We saw it happen with Southwest, like we talked about. I was literally just in Huntington Beach yesterday and saw all the ships backed up just floating in the ocean. They say there's over 500,000 shipping containers on over 200 barges that just can't pull into port. And I'm also hearing that Amtrak employees are primed to strike, dock workers, truckers. It's hard to know what's hype and what's actually going to come to fruition. But what are you seeing when it comes to real resistance of the mandates and worker shortages now or in the near future?
1: I'd like to see more. (laughs) I'll start with that. Because you're right. You know, you you hear these news reports and then you hear from like the commentary class on Twitter and and other social media sites. You kind of wonder, like, how much of this is actually legitimate? I'd love to see more people come out against the mandates. But what I've seen, sadly, is that these corporations, even if they're not mandates, even if the Biden administration is issuing guidelines, like that hundred employee rule that you need to give them the shots if you have 100 employees or more. And they never really established a legal framework for it. But these corporations just accepted it for whatever reason, because I think there just wasn't enough pushback. And you mentioned the barge issue. That's kind of fascinating. And I think that story should be uh, in the news every single day because you have like food spoiling, items going bad. Talk about supply chain issues. That's just unbelievable that there's just (laughs) ships out there and there's not enough people to unload them. So if there's an issue at the starting point at the port, imagine what the rest of the supply chain is looking like. It's naturally not a sign of good things to come. It's tough because when those type of people strike, it might create even bigger problems in the United States. But, you know, I'm just not seeing it yet. I'm not seeing enough evidence to confidently say that these industries are revolting against the government. I don't see the evidence for that right now hopefully soon.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, sadly, I'm right there with you. And when I hear the news talk about the supply chain and the ships backed up, they try to dismiss it as, well, it looks like there'll be less plastic stuff to buy for Christmas. And it's like, well, there's a lot of stuff on those barges and in those shipping containers. It's not just cheap plastic shit for Christmas. It's not just Furbies and Tickle Me Elmo's. It's a lot of stuff. I read one article about farm equipment that independent farmers in particular can't get the right access to tractor supplies or just a whole slew of farm equipment or little pieces for repairs. And again, big farms don't have a problem. Monsanto's got what they need, Tyson Chicken. You know, of course, we did have that thing where these giant food producers had a hard time complying with six-foot distances and all that stuff. And it caused a little bit of a shortage. But to squeeze out independent farmers, once again, just another notch in the belt of those trying to snuff out the last independent food producers. And then you got, of course, all kinds of supplies for electronics. And it's really troubling, just the supply chain shortages. And I haven't really, like you, I haven't really gone into grocery stores and seen mass empty shelves but everybody keeps saying they might be coming and it's just good to be prepared i would say
1: yeah that's i feel like that's the last thing we need right now as a country to have another like toilet paper and paper towel shortage i'm sure you remember like february of 2019 we had these same kind of rumblings and then there was a run on the supermarkets and back then we didn't have nearly as many problems with what was going on on the farms, and with the ships being backed up, we didn't have those logistical issues. So I can only imagine what it would look like if you flip that switch. And if you remember, another thing that could cause alarm is that during those early months when we started to do the 15 days to stop the spread, the financial markets were slammed. So for the health of people's economic and just general well-being, you fear that something like that might be coming so you know i don't want to tell everyone listening to make sure they're stocked up on supplies but people need to be smart about sustaining their livelihood especially in times like these where you're you're seeing evidence that there is some funky stuff going on and it's not being communicated to you in a good way so people definitely have to keep their guard up in that sense
0: Yes, and whether or not we actually end up with massive shortages is hard to say, but even if we don't, shouldn't we make ourselves less vulnerable to the possibility of having them? Shouldn't we reel back globalism and start making things here anyway? Because it seems like a fragile and risky process when you think about all the steps in the chain of custody to get stuff here, and the terrible conditions of the people working in these places that we shouldn't be supporting either. And that's another one of those things that I would have to give Trump credit for at least talking about. I don't know if we did much about it when he was around, but you'll never hear Biden say a critical word about globalism, and that's a shame.
1: Yeah, well, I think he's too far gone to have an original thought at this point. <laughs> it's very sad to see that. Yeah, you know, he's just very much. I'm um, certainly under the impression and it's interesting how little trust there is in this administration, especially because, you know, I come from the right. So when I talk about these issues, like with what's going on with the Biden administration, it's pretty much unanimous. You don't get this sense by watching Fox News or anything, because they're, I think, a part of the establishment as well. Like the real, I think, right-leaning, just average American doesn't buy any of this stuff. They think that the Biden presidency is totally fake, that he's He has like no control. You can observe. You don't need to be an expert in cognitive science to observe that there's something he's not up to a functional standard that you'd want your president of the United States to have. You know, there's so little trust that even when he got his booster shot or supposedly got his booster shot on live TV and that makeshift, that TV set that they created. The comments on my feed were unanimous. They said, there's no way he got the shot. You know, it's all fake. They probably gave him saline. So that's like the kind of distrust is it's like almost all bullshit for these people. And they have the right to kind of like believe that because you have this guy who's like barely functional reading off a script and you just think like, what the heck is going on with this presidency? I don't think for a second that Biden's the one calling the shots.
0: (laughs) Well, even he says that he isn't. I think he's so far gone. There's definitely been times where he starts his speeches with, I've been told to say, or they want me to let you know, and these kind of things. It's like, you're saying the quiet part out loud, buddy. You're not supposed to say that part.
1: (laughs) I think he's suffering, unfortunately. And I think his wife might be committing some sort of elder abuse at this point, because if Kamala were to take over now, There's no role for the good doctor of education, Jill Biden, and some people that are close to Biden. So I think it'll be interesting to see because I have a very hard time thinking that he can get really far past one term. He's basically missing in action the entire presidency. And they're like, you know, it's like the weekend of Bernie's presidency. So (laughs) they're going to have to shift over to someone eventually because I would hope that they know. Or maybe they don't know that the people just aren't buying into it. But I think that they've got to be quietly alarmed about the the polling that's showing this administration in a free fall. So if there is a narrative change, you'll start to see it in the corporate press, New York Times, Washington Post. They'll start to have, you know, they're basically acting as regime stenographers right now for Biden administration. Biden can do wrong, wrong. There's nothing wrong with him. I think you'll slowly start seeing. If they want to shift gears to another, if they want to go to Harris or do something else, I think you'll start seeing it in these corporate press papers that are basically tethered to the ruling authorities at this time. I, I think you'll start to see them actually ask the questions that we've been asking for years about Biden's mental health and his capacity to be the president. And I think that'll be a big cue.
0: Yeah. Cheers to that. And on the subject of other hopeful signs, we waffled a little bit throughout this. Are people waking up or aren't they? Well, as we're trying to tie a bow around this conversation, what else are you seeing that maybe does give you a little confidence that the tide is turning for the authoritarians outside of people maybe coming around to Bitcoin and freedom based financial opportunities? Are there other things that actually give you hope for the next five or 10 years?
1: I think, again, that people underestimate the effect that Bitcoin can have on society, that it's a tool. It's kind of like a Trojan horse for freedom. And the government is so far behind on this that, you know, in the cryptocurrency world in general, the Biden administration just announced this weekend that they're like, oh, we want to regulate these cryptocurrencies. You know, they they sound like talking to a senior citizen about the latest internet technology there's certainly a disconnect between the government's understanding so i'm hopeful because the government is so behind the eight ball on understanding the threat this poses to them that they will be too late for them to react when they finally realize that these forces for freedom have inundated society and on a local level with the COVID stuff, I'm really enjoying these parents that are revolting against the school boards that are either trying to put their kids in masks or threaten to shut down the schools or you know, put these like social distancing policies in place. That's super encouraging to me. The fact that the regime is so alarmed that they're starting to like sick the FBI on, on these people, that I think is actually an optimistic moment because they are so threatened by this revolt and these parents and local communities are starting to really push back against the stuff. And I, I hope we see more of that.
0: I agree. Yeah. The mama bears are out there in full force. I've seen some really compelling bit shoot videos that were really just moms who saw their kids' friends fall ill after getting vaccinated and just Turned the camera on, pressed record, and was like, what are we doing? I've seen it firsthand. And, you know, there's, as they say, nothing worse than a woman scorned. And if that woman is a mother, I think it's even tenfold. So that's a, a thing I've been trying to watch for, that when you mess with people's kids, it sometimes breaks the programming. And lucky for us, there are indications that that is happening. And... Another closing question I had for you was what would be your assessment of journalism or your message for other journalists? It seems like the aspiration should be to build an audience on Patreon or Substack or one of these truly independent platforms rather than get a job at some media company. And with that, I would say, then what's the real point of a journalism degree? Because that four years in college could just be spent Promoting truth and gaining an audience online, but we do need all hands on deck right now, I would say. What would you tell journalists or potential journalists out there?
1: I'm definitely right there with you, Greg, that I think a journalism degree is useless if not a sign that you've been propagandized by the machine. If you want to get involved in, like, maybe visual effects or some type of production, There, of course, is schooling for stuff like that, but no one needs to learn in an academic setting how to inform the masses about issues that are important and that aren't discussed. I think that, you know, with a good mentor, you can very much become a solid journalist. And some people just enjoy conforming to their machine. But on the other side, there's a big audience for people that are kind of like unwavering and willing to just in this industry, it's just very easy to fall into that trap where you want to be well liked instead of more of a truth teller, but those people tend to not make it. I think you need to have like a really thick skin to be able to state your, and you do this every time you drop a new podcast to state your opinion That a lot of people might find controversial, that they might disagree with, that they might send you nasty letters and emails. So, you definitely, I think the thick skin might develop more over time, but I think a lot of people that get into this space need to be ready for some hostile critiques and to just keep an open mind. It's definitely not for everyone, but we need a lot more people that are willing to really fearlessly approach these issues. And I think in the end, people will reward you like i've been blown away at, at i've been lucky enough to have like a lot of people that have come over to my substack because they just like appreciated that i was willing to cover these tough items that a lot of people shied away from so you know if you're willing to really put the work in i think that the possibilities for like especially someone that's coming out of college or in college The possibilities are still, there's still a lot of stuff that you can get done and you can still build an audience rather quickly by just reporting the truths that remain so underreported or completely unreported in today's society.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, cheers to that for sure. I definitely can say I have gotten so much support for such a fringe counterculture type of content that I'm just... Maybe I'm not so alone. You know, maybe these aren't such counterculture fringe opinions. At least people are interested in them. And that's a beautiful thing. But man, this has been really educational and cathartic. I'm sure a lot of listeners will agree if they want to support you or follow your work, where are the places they should do that?
1: So most of my published work now is at dossier.substack.com. It's called the dossier on Substack. And then you can, uh, for all of my low quality <laughs> posts, you can follow me on Twitter, just at Jordan Schachtel, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-L. And then I do a, a weekly live stream with Rockfin every Wednesday. So it's rockfin.com. And you can just search me in the search box. And it's a really cool site. And you know a lot of, a lot of funny comedians that, are, that you said are your buddies over there. And there's, there's a lot of interesting topics over there too. So I'd highly recommend that as well. And thanks so much for having me on, Greg. Really appreciate it.
0: You got it, man. This has been excellent. And you are one of the good ones. And I appreciate you taking the time and the work you do. Keep fighting the good fight and take care.
1: Yeah, thanks so much.
0: The power of Christ compels you, people. Hard to not revisit the notorious news cycle. And even though we typically have a long lead time on episodes, we flip this around to you pretty fast. It's too important not to, really. Big thanks to Jordan for his continued dedication to the work. I'm not so much in the mood to talk about masks or PCR tests or the things we've been going over for a year, but there are new elements that are very much worth talking about. The mandates, gotta talk about that, and the supply chain issues, which are very much interlinked and are very much the things that people are worried about right now, more so than a virus. But I would say we've already had some serious wins. The mandates for vaccination keep getting pushed back further and further. I was hearing October 15th, but now I hear all kinds of dates. I think San Diego's police and firefighters have until December 1st now. I'm hearing a lot of mid-November dates. None of these companies really want to be liable for this. There is no real law in the books, so if you've been fired over it, I hope you're pursuing that option. If you still have time, but there are tensions at your work, I would advise you to say to your employer, look, I don't feel comfortable with this risk. I am requesting that you pay for a physical so we can get my current health on the record. And then after you make me get this shot, we'll have very clear indications as to what might be responsible for any potential damage. In my opinion, even suggesting a preliminary physical is enough to get their mental wheels turning and they're not going to push it on you. Somebody just asked me on Twitter the other day, they said, hey, I'm a huge fan of the show and I'm at a crossroads because I really want to seek higher education on campus But they're demanding a vaccine. What would you do? And I said, well, you're talking to a guy who lists dropping out of college and saving the money as one of the smartest things I ever did. So I would say instead of pausing your life for four years while you rack up immense debt, just go do the thing you wanted to do. Or go to a trade school. I've got several friends who actually went to one year or less trade schools and are now making pretty damn good money at a job that they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. It's just another example of how we are still thinking traditionally in what we were taught we're supposed to do in life, and now that comes with this new vaccine requirement. And you should sit and contemplate how much you need these institutions, how much you need this particular job. I'm not saying throw it all away, but think about creative ways to get what you want and keep your autonomy. I definitely don't think the right approach is, well, I'll get this jab because my job is making me and then it'll all be over. A job that would demand such a thing is not a job you want. I'm not saying quit without being prepared. But you had time to prepare, you should still be preparing, and as soon as you are prepared, get the hell out of there! I know a lot of you guys are under some serious pressure, but we have seen the needle move our way this week. And now Colin Powell died, but they are careful to say of COVID complications, not COVID itself. Even though Fauci said that this vaccination is a 100% guard against hospitalizations and death, I'd love to hear them bring that up in these stories. They never do. I also hope that soon we'll see regular people start turning their outrage towards the shot makers and the government puppets who have consistently moved the goalposts on this thing. They did say it would keep you from getting sick, and then that was obviously not true. So they said, well, you won't get sick as bad or be hospitalized, and you definitely won't die. And now what are they going to say? Hard to keep blaming this on the unvaccinated, and only the dumbest of dumb people will keep supporting that narrative. I've lost my patience. But I am trying to stay focused on celebrating the wins. As worried as I am about the supply chain and inflation, I am happy that we got all kinds of unions going on strike, and companies are backing off their vaccinate or vacate dates. And if you do want to look for another job, there is a website called redballoon.work. It is a monster.com for those employees and employers who are against these mandates. redballoon.work So see, things are popping up out there, and why even wait for the next one? Maybe there's something you can already do with the skills you have. Maybe people could use a new website or an app for finding locally grown food or Made in America products. There are so many tools that we could use to strengthen the people living on the outside of these mandates. So, dive in. We need a lot more than YouTube alternatives, you know? But I really appreciate Jordan's work. Been following him for a while now. Very informative and often funny Twitter profile. Definitely deserves to be in that 100,000 plus follower club. Another indication that there's more of us than they want us to know about. If you liked the first hour of this interview, join Plus to hear the second hour. What are you doing? Who listens to half a show week after week? It's crazy. But today we talked about Australia's problems, nations who handled COVID with a softer hand and what that data shows, the relationship between vaccines, boosters, and COVID cases from the countries that are a little further down the path with the booster thing, Latest reports on COVID shot damages and testimonials. We talked about alternative platforms, Disney's Fauci documentary, why Fauci is deeply evil, the militarization of the private sector post-mandate, financial control, digital currencies, and purchasing restraints. Lots of interesting stuff, and really, I think that the big machine is just running... Barely fast enough to escape the collapse of its own narrative. And that collapse is catching up. And if you don't want to hear about COVID, we got hundreds of shows in the archive for you to catch up on if you're a new Plus member or thinking about it. But you know how it all works. The TheHigherSideChats.com or find me on Patreon if you are in that ecosystem. Happy with this interview, though. Very cathartic for me. Very busy and stressful week over here on my end, so I am going to wrap this up quickly, but big thanks to Jordan. Let him know if you had a good time. Keep up to date on the news through his podcast and his substack, both great resources. Or if you're a Rockfin kind of guy, you can find him there too. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Don't give in. Find the others and find your happiness. I know it's all out there somewhere, but I've done my part. Your move, mandators, economic eroders, and great resetters. Your fucking move.
2: I won't take it, no I refuse. If it's alright, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a hole, got a neat elevator. Going under, and now you'll find me in the bunker. Yeah, the other
0: according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do?
2: Bunker, take it under. you find me in the bunker. Bunker. Bunker, take it under. you find me in the bunker. Bunker, take it under. The bunker,